the uh, leaky bucket metaphor. Did you see this part of that op-ed? Providing a social safety net is like using a leaky bucket to redistribute water among people with different (laughs) amounts. While bringing water to the thirstiest may be noble, it is also costly as some water is lost in transit. And this is to explain why we can't have a social safety net in the United States because of a leaky bucket. Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to our weekly Tuesday bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So uh, it seems like once again, legislative attempts to lower prescription drug costs through direct price negotiations with pharma companies have stalled and the pharma lo- lobby, <laughs> PHRMA, our faves, they've been rolling out all of the stops and dumping a ton of money and effort and energy and resources to fight this very meager drug pricing reform that's been on the table as part of reconciliation negotiations. I think the uh, I think the estimate is something like $18 million between pharma direct spending and the money that it's poured into other groups like the... Uh aptly named coalition against socialized medicine mm. <laughs> oh my god so that's fun an oldie but a goodie I mean, and and it's important to emphasize that while they have been putting a lot of work and money into the messaging the message itself is nothing new right we, and, we've heard and, this and they the failed and they failed ultimately like you, you like the, the surveys of this like something like 80 percent of people are like yes uh compared to drug companies being able to make exorbitant <laughs> profits I prefer the government being able to, I don't know, negotiate them, negotiate with them. It's like the, even just like at a metaphorical level, like any sort of attempt of pharma to like rhetorically reconstruct the $18 million, like congratulations on having uh, wasted that at least (laughs) if, if, if your goal was to change public opinion. However, if your goal was to give three piddling ass uh, Democrats the ability to say, oh, we're afraid of what might happen if we like, <laughs> yes, you've you've won. But that outcome already sort of seemed foreordained. I mean, that's the beautiful part, right? They don't even have to worry about changing public opinion because they're going to lose that fight. Uh, really, you know, you they don't have to they... change public opinion if no, if like democracy doesn't work anyway. Hell like yeah. you don't have to change public <laughs> opinion if like if they're fucking like gormless uh, representatives in the house uh, won't be responsive to it at, at the last. Well, and this is funny because you know we've we've talked about drug pricing reform a bunch. I think even really recently we had another uh, episode. I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but we had another episode where we talked about the sort of. Uh, this push to this push that has been going specifically with HR three since HR three was itself was like first introduced in 2019. But obviously, you know, this is a, as we've talked about on the show before, this is like the longstanding, you know, hobby horse of like, this, this is the, this is the big constantly unsolved thing, right. Of the democratic party, basically since like back in like the fifties with the key hearings, right. Mm-hmm. Is like, we're going to do something about drug pricing 
we we're going to figure it out. We promise. <laughs> we promise. It's never like it, it basically doesn't happen. And I think I think for me, the really interesting part about this, and maybe this is what you're getting to be, but is that, you know, one of the very significant changes between, let's say, you know, the, the thing I'm referencing in the, the 50s to say today is now we have state actors or we have now we have actors within the state itself, like the Congressional Budget Office, who have produced a lovely report. Mm-hmm basically, you know, backing everybody's favorite pharmaceutical uh, manufacturers association uh, lobbying claim, which is that if you do, if you, if you do this, if you move on drug pricing reform at all, Mm -hmm. that it will stifle innovation and it will like remove entrepreneurial spirit, uh, right. The possibility for a certain amount of drugs to be produced. Can't dampen that entrepreneurial spirit. You know, that, that, that in and of itself is a force of nature that has to be respected and carefully, you know, (laughs) tended and, and watched and, you know, it has to be cultivated. Well, and also that we can project and also something that we can <laughs> totally forecast like 30 years in the future. Like this is my this is my favorite thing. Like for those playing the home version of this game, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> the uh, I think would be like probably the worst board game ever. Like the CBO, you will know the CBO and hate the CBO for its ludicrous and opaque cost estimates of any sort of socially emancipatory legislation, right. um, which can then be used again by the same sort of, um, you know, dim-witted you know, Democrats to just say like, oh, we can't do this. It's going to cost too much. Like that will be the CBO you're familiar with. But interestingly enough, right, that version of the CBO or the fact that like mostly what the CBO does is cost estimates and not like assessing what the benefits of legislation would be or right. anything but costs like that actually given what Democrats are trying to do here, that part of the budget office should be their friend here. And it sort of is because Democrats, you know, um, unsurprisingly, like it's it's hard to get them to put some sort of standalone drug pricing negotiation policy in place because like unsurprisingly, there even though most people support drug price negotiation, there's not like a really vigorous constituency for it in the same mm-hmm. way that there's a huge vigorous constituency against it, namely pharma. <laughs> right. So like if you're going to do something like that, you have to tie it to expanding benefits in Medicare in some way. And the way that you do that or the way the Democrats do that, right, is by saying, look, um, pharma is raking all this money in from the federal government. We're going to open up new benefits and we're going to offset the spending through uh, reducing drug prices through this negotiation process. So that's that's essentially what Democrats are doing here in this bill called H.R. 3, which has sort of been around since 2019 in one form or another. They are basically uh, using the drug price negotiation here to like offset uh, new benefits. Now, here is where so like unsurprisingly, when uh, <laughs> you introduce something like this, you can show that you're going to save uh, billions of dollars, that the price negotiations are going to lower spending by like something like four hundred fifty six billion. Um, and, it, you know, if you think about the dental vision and hearing coverage expansion, that's like 
costs like 358 billion and like oh wow okay it sort of like washes out well home and community-based services too was originally pegged at 400 billion although now you have as i'm sure we'll probably talk about in the future on the show now you have them talking it down in reconciliation to like 200 right. or whatever mm-hmm. but yeah so so like this is not so but by, by by no means is this like an endorsement of like this way of doing policy this sucks this is really this is really well, stupid and, and, right and wait actually not to like totally derail you but i do want to just pause no, no, on let's that not point. get it Let's not get wanna, ahead of ourselves here. Let's not get, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Just, I, it, it is very important to, uh, I think, highlight the ways in which this sucks. Because exactly as you're saying, like it is very important that the drug pricing reform thing. Basically, we've talked prior about how the specific way it goes about things is pretty is you know pretty restricted. And I think we'll talk some more about that today, and especially about the new Senate proposal and how especially restrictive the um, the idea of even like what they would be able to quote unquote negotiate on, um, or whether we could really call it a negotiation actually, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but. The but on top of it, the fact that this is being positioned, like you're saying, as a way of, you know, according to various estimates and those especially within the House itself as a way of sort of creating seven hundred billion dollars or so of quote unquote savings, a.k.a. of like freeing up budget space to do these other things that you're talking about to the point that now. There are, for, for instance, um, uh, Representative Peter Welch of Vermont gave a quote to Politico saying, there are a lot of folks who have ideas about how best to spend the money, as in the say, quote unquote savings. Again, I hate the fra- phrasing of it like such, yeah, it's but really stupid. The, the savings, quote unquote, from this, uh, this uh, drug pricing bill. Continuing quote, but that debate is premature until we know what happens with drug pricing and how much we are working with. Therefore, so many of the other really important debates, stuff like home and community-based services for, uh, you know, long-term care for disabled and elderly people, right? Those conversations are seen by elected representatives as essentially not able to even be started, really, or finalized until they can lock down the details of how much they you know, expect to trim off of this one weird trick, essentially, right off of this like fucking budget trick. Yeah. I mean, it's like a budget trick that's inspired from like closet cleanup videos where people say one in one now, you know, you don't know how much you can like go shopping for fall until you know how much space you've cleared in your closet. Well, it's like fully zero sum. Exactly. uh, Austerity galaxy brain. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And that's and and that's like. And here's where it gets worse, right? Because again, <laughs> like even within this like stupid like austerity galaxy brain world, they they've sort of like figured that out. They've sort of mastered that at a certain level. Um, they're like, oh, we can like use the CBO to you know help justify these things. Okay, that's like you know, congrats. I'm going to give you a like certificate of participation for that. <laughs> um, but here's here's where the real uh, loveliness comes in, which is that. The CBO usually produces these like cost estimates, right? right? And they they just sort of go through and like here's this part of the bill and here's how this much will cost and here's how <laughs> this part of the bill and here's the and usually like I think for the three of us like that's so stupid because you're not saying anything else really about what the legislation does, any sort of benefit it might have in the world. You're mm-hmm. like you're really just narrowly looking at costs. And then CBO in this like spending estimate, they're like Oh yeah! By the way, we did one other thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, one you know, thing. I know. I don't know if you guys asked for this, like you wanted it, but like, 
we also looked at, uh, oh yeah, how this bill is going to impact uh, pharmaceutical innovation over the next 10, no, 20, no, it's 30 years. Uh, we're going to make 30-year <laughs> estimates. Um, like, keep in mind, the CBO in its scoring it usually says, like, we don't make estimates beyond 10 years because uh, it's just too wacky and uncertain to actually conceptualize, like, what's going to happen in 30 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, like, notably, the CBO has refused time and time again to look at really many other effects that you would think would have some impact on the budget baseline. So just for example, the CBO does not include the effects of federal prize competitions uh, for things like drug development that could have positive effects on like preventative health outcomes. They don't include what the effects of that would be on budgets uh, or on spending. They don't look at the effects of climate change mitigation on the federal budget, even though climate change is going to require for a variety of reasons, uh, like a metric fuck ton more of uh, federal spending. Um, They don't look at the effects of like many preventative or like life. So like with Medicare for all, they've just like refused to like, uh, we don't really know how like saving lives or like, <sighs> you know, improving preventative health would impact the cost that we expend on like chronic health conditions. So we're just not going to do that. But, but in this analysis, they're like, <laughs> yeah, we're definitely capable of saying how many drugs will not be developed in 30 years as a consequence of this legislation? And it's like, I I, want to go deeper into this, but let's just like meditate on that fact for just a second. Right. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that normally a lot of the judgments and commentary that are, that are in this report from the CBO would you would never see something like this coming from them, right? I mean, one of the things that we've criticized them about over and over is the way that by just focusing on, you know, the economic, like the cost, right, of a policy, you really like reduce it and you ignore what's going on and how it materially like impacts people's lives. And the CBO defends itself by saying, you know, we can't, we're, you know, hard data facts people. We can't get into that sort of speculative abstract territory unless, (laughs) unless it pertains to something even more abstract with zero real world ability to study and prove these assumptions, right? Because that's the other thing. Like, yeah, you can claim that, you know, something's going to like decrease drug output by, you know, whatever, eight pharmaceuticals a year for the next 30 years. But you can't even speculate if that's a good or a bad thing either, Right. Like there is zero information from like the perspective that CBO is looking at this that could actually give them the information that they would need to make an accurate prediction. But instead, it's like it's like taking numbers and shoring up the drug story talking point that's been used over and over. So it's like almost like working in reverse. Right. You know, they're like, okay, we have an outcome in mind. Like, how do we build support for that? And and the other thing I want to like note, and this is I don't want to get like too um, metaphysical here, but (laughs) there's something that happened. So like, okay, like whatever academics try to do like forecasts, all kinds of things all the time. Right. Right. And it's like, it's just an academic matter of academic debate and they publish papers and like review things and whatever. It's like, it's all, it's all gravy. Right. But, um, 
there's something that happens when the CBO does an analysis like this. So you take this analysis. So by the way, it's like a working paper. It's not like published anywhere. You right. can't like get the data and like do a replication of it in any way. I like to think of it as like when the priest at mass, sorry to use a Catholic example, but you can think about anything, <laughs> a, a, any sort of religious experience like this. Um, they take these profane objects like bread and wine and they make them into sacred things like the body and the blood like right. that is what happens when CBO publishes something like this. It right. goes from just being like a working paper that you can critique and talk about and like, oh, maybe, maybe or this, a shitty pharmaceutical company talking point or, or like a mm-hmm. sh- shitty pharmaceutical company talking point, And it's washed clean and made into a <laughs> sacred object um, and, and lit- literally that has like with with respect to cost estimates actually has a like binding effect on what Congress does in the legislative process. It affects like what they can do the, the way that the, the budgeting uh, cycle works, like it really matters. And, and in this case, it also gives people uh, like uh, Dan Crenshaw, just like an ability <laughs> to just like, just the easiest, like most like bargain basement talking point. But this is like, this is the problem, which is that it is, it, you, you might want to like question the assumptions. There's a bunch of questionable assumptions like there is in like, frankly, any paper. Um, mm-hmm. But once it's washed and like made sacred, y- you can't. It's just the official uh, number. And then the uh, media outlets are going to report it that way. And like this is this is a huge, huge problem. And it's why actually like getting into the details, I don't usually like. This is not for like the purpose of like, uh, you know, whatever, like wonkiness, but like just looking at a few of the (laughs) few of like the details here are just like kind of crazy because one question would be like, where are they getting Mm. this idea that like in the next 10 years, there's going to be a loss of eight. Um, The the drug companies are not going to produce eight pharmaceuticals. By the way, spoiler alert, they never say which eight. Uh, except well, yeah, to note course, that it's probably going to be, be. The, except to note that it's probably going to be the eight that are the most profitable. Uh, just <laughs> as an FYI, they say that that's a weird assumption. Well, I make. mean, it's it, in a roundabout way of saying like that's that's the whole point of the analysis is to say like what what's going to affect the firm's decision, right? Again, like a what if we lose the eight most profitable or most life saving drugs because we did a you know, modest adjustment to what people are expected. I to mean, pay. Yeah, it's like, like very much like a, a, a warning of like, don't you meddle lest you like suffer the consequences later of having, you know, interfered with the all knowing, all seeing uh, power of pharma now. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, and that's never really addressed. It's never like, OK, what will the societal consequences of, you know, losing these anonymous eight drugs be? <laughs> um uh, or, and then, by the way, like as the decades go on and as the future gets like more speculative, um, it's like more and more drugs. It's like not just eight, but like 30 over like one decade. And it, right. You know, so it just, they it say because they're well, to, and to be clear, because their argument is essentially that in the short term, you would lose these you would you know lose these theoretical eight drugs because pharmaceutical development pipeline is long uh studies take a long time to conduct also and so there are things that are like in advanced stages of 
um, of, you know, being being studied uh, ultimately toward FDA approval that would, you know, continue to be in the pipeline because those cost benefit equations essentially were already run uh, under the as the CBO draws explicit attention to and a lot of deference to the quote unquote firm's decision problem um, mm-hmm. over whether or not to pursue drug development, that, that those decisions will have been made already. And then that down the line, future decisions would not be made. Um, obviously, you know, taking a lot of assumptions here, including one, uh, which I think, I, you know, I just want to point out other than obviously, you know, we can, we can poke holes in the, in the methodology explicitly, but I would say just from a pure <laughs> yeah. ideological level, I would say yes. one, this, this assumes, um, first of all, that, you know, pr- the primary site of drug research and development is happening within pharmaceutical companies, which is like not the case naturally. Mm-hmm. And also there's no reason it would have to be the case. There's no reason that pharmaceutical uh, companies yes. need to be producing the drugs in the first place, but I digress. Obviously, you know, that's you know, me, already unlike people, but, pharmaceuticals don't spawn spontaneously reproduce without you, um, you know, having a guiding hand. That's what pharma CEOs are for to do the, you know, genetic selection of of which pharma should move forward. This is, you know, people Um, who are just like a a disease spreading. The other assumption, which is very (laughs) funny, I think the funniest to me is just so on a basic level, let's say nothing else changed, but you did enact HR3 and, you know, certain pharmaceutical companies, some of which who are like wealthier than God or whatever, do put in, you know, less money in research and development, or, or let's say not even do put in, let's just say, let's say this happens. And then they, these pharmaceutical companies do make less profits off of their already, you know, obscene amounts of profit. Okay. The idea that then pharmaceutical companies, which because of the patent cycle and everything like that are driven to you know, whenever whenever a certain pharmaceutical company, like let's say Gilead, we've talked about in the past, who has been in a, a situation where like they're staring down the barrel of like not having significant new IP mm-hmm. come through, like they have to like there is a quote unquote market incentive for them to do these things no matter what to find new drugs to market and produce. So I think the very basis the the very basis of this assumption that reducing profits would then directly lead to that comes out of R and D is, you know, obviously questionable. They, they, these companies already spend a sizable portion of their budgets on fucking marketing and as we have just talked about on marketing against legislative proposals like this. And that doesn't right? even so, count all the money they're spending paying the people who are crafting the messaging and who are like crafting, right. you know, the ideas in the first place too. Right. So what I'm saying is like this, just just even to have, I'm, I'm sure that you'll have some receipts like uh, on this, uh, b- both of you, frankly, but like the, j- just the idea that some of these variables that they're comparing are directly com- like comparable and that this could be said to lead to, you know, that the like pr- overall profit reduction for this sector would then lead to, you know, stifling innovation mm. is just, is basically just pure ideology. As we, you know, the reason B mentioned the dr- the quote unquote drug story uh, is because like that is literally the narrative yes. that has been constructed. That is the idea. <laughs> right. And this started as a cold war thing. This started as a fucking, this started quite literally as a, uh, look at the, you know, look at the fucking Russians or whatever, the Soviets who have not produced, quote unquote, you know, have not produced a significant drug or whatever. This is because they don't have the great American market uh, was the idea. And that has been used the same. Like all, all they've done is like they've moved the onus of, um, 
you know, the specter of communism or whatever from the USSR to basically, I don't know, like small segments of the American public. Right. Right. No, exactly. And, and I mean, it's actually kind of it's kind of hilarious because pharma as a lobby, PHRMA, right, has really taken this messaging of the drug story. And in the past, you know, like eight, nine years has done a tremendous job, like fracturing it and inserting it into every single attack against pharma. So it's like you see this messaging come up when people are saying we need to, you know, seize pharmaceutical patents. We need to do compulsory licensing for, let's say, I don't know, COVID vaccines um, and therapeutics, right? Like, so it's like the story yep. is applied for a defense of drug pricing controls. It's applied for a defense of intellectual property rights. It's applied for a defense of stuff like, well, if we force all medical device manufacturers to actually test their devices and remove the loophole that allows a medical device to be approved as long as it's got, you know, <laughs> 10% of its patent relates to a prior approved patent that, you know, in order to make it more safe, right, that that's going to stifle innovation. And, and, and what that's resulted in over the years is, you know, this absolutely sort of victimized portrayal of pharma as the, the do-gooder who is putting all of this sort of charitable energy and money towards trying to cure the world if we would only let them <laughs> cure the world and take right. the profit and they're entitled to. This is a really good point. And I, I think this is good because, like, we, we don't actually have to get into a lot of the details here because the fundamental thing to know is that the entire premise of this like uh not only like the the like whatever the cbo is doing but just like the rhetoric that's going to happen regardless of what they do is yeah. that innovation is is entirely premised on the profit motive that that's what drives innovation Right. Which we know is not true because so much innovation would not happen without simply like government investment, <laughs> like absent the pro like literally only because the profit motive does not exist. Uh, so like but let's let's leave that aside for a second, because I do think it's like worth thinking about the following things like one. Where does the data come from that allows these projections yes, to be made? Please. This is so important. The data, because obviously there's no public a database of uh, what pharmaceutical companies spend on anything. They right. need to come in. I, I, I want to quote here, quote, CBO doesn't have access to any similar database to estimate expenditures associated with bringing a drug through the development process. Uh, so they use a, a information reported from another study. The authors of that study, quote, selected a sample of about 100 drugs and requested information about their associated expenditures in each mm. stage of development. Those drugs began human testing somewhere in the world between 1995 and 2007. Uh, and essentially what these people do is... They use information submitted by the drug companies themselves yeah. <laughs> on what the, the, their expenditures Couldn't are going to be. Couldn't possibly be a conflict of interest there, you know, no, never. That, but that to me is sort of like small potatoes because even if you assume, let's assume that the drug companies want to provide the most accurate information and they really yeah. like care about this, right? And, and ins truly an insane assumption, <laughs> but let's, <laughs> let's go with it. Yeah. Let's yes. And this, um, sure. because even if that were true and even if it were true again, that we could forecast 30 years in the future that some anonymous 
like 30 drugs would not be developed. Again, we have no <laughs> idea what they would be, except that they would probably be the drugs that the companies would rake in the most money on. Sure. Again, yeah. <laughs> let's assume that that's ca- the case. And let's assume that there's like, I don't know, a quarter of those 30 drugs are actually um, really, really important and we wouldn't want to lose them. Okay. Again, the implicit assumption here was that would be that the federal government would do nothing Right. To fill in the gaps that no one would have an incentive to do anything about the absence of these vital treatments. And like usually the CBO tries to do the thing where they're like, well, we try to leave as much of the future constant as possible so we can just see what the effect of like moving this one parameter we is. We just did one thing. But yeah. Essentially what you're doing there is you are uh, delegating the entire future to pharma. You're saying that like. It, if this happens, we assume that in the future, like the only actors that could change anything would be the pharmaceutical industry themselves, either through market activity or through lobbying uh, or something. But we're going to assume that nothing will change if these really important and vital things aren't done, that no one will have an incentive to act. And that is just the most like basic, illogical, like non-commonsensical yeah. uh, assumption. And it is not only an assumption that like someone makes in a working paper at this point that can be like debated and discussed. It's now like part of an official like cost estimate like that, that can be then used and cited as an official uh, statistic. So well, like, right. and I, you're, you're like baking in the the uh, political economy as it exists with no possible changes and saying essentially that this is some sort of, you know, it is a stylized fact, but it is being repeated as this like <laughs> ideologically pure or purified or whatever this, uh, as you said, cleansed and made uh, sacred, uh, which has this huge potential for, uh, you know, a social reproductive impact. Right. And I don't want to over like this is the thing I, I like one one criticism of this this whole thing you could make is like, well, who really cares what the CBO does? Like, like regardless of what they do, capital like has this sort of like cage around Congress. It, it can threaten to, you know, do a capital strike that it can threaten to like withhold all of this investment. Or in the case of pharmaceutical companies, it's not just about like withholding investment in the economy. It's about with like withholding the like necessary means for like life. Um, but I, I do think that what the CBO is doing here matters because it is using the power of the state to reinforce the lie that's like produced when capital like threatens a, like a strike or the its ability to like withhold these like vital things. It, 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 it increases this um, like members of Congress really do sort of take this stuff seriously to some extent. And they, they're, you know, apparently persuaded by it, but it, it does have a sort of, structural effect and it's a field on which there should be contention like there's no reason why an agency of government should be able to do this and by the way like this is an agency of government that isn't subject to a lot of the sort of procedural protections that like when the epa makes a a crazy like when like the trump administration epa does some crazy sort of analysis and says like oh yeah by the way like we're gonna uh, increase like oil production and and somehow that's not only going to like improve the climate but like going to be every, greener actually every yeah. single person is going <laughs> to get a oil. dish of custard served to them as well um the like cbo has there's no foia foia does not apply to cbo hmm. you can't request so like 
if we wanted to know why CBO put this particular thing in the cost estimate uh, or why they did it this way or like what the communications were about why they might have wanted to do it this way, we can't find out. It's right. completely a black box. You cannot request that information. Well, and this um, is really important because I think one mm-hmm. of the reasons, I mean, we pick on the CBO all the time and I think for a very good reason, because as we were talking, as we're talking about, not only in this case, but in so many other cases, it does really constrict the social reproduction of possibilities, like the idea of, of, uh, you know, possibilities for what can be done by tying everything to this, like, uh, you know, again, in, like inherently austere, um, debt, like debt burden logic, basically. But also, I mean, it's just so under scrutinized as an agency and for the things that it puts out, because as we're talking about here, you know, we can very easily call out like, um, okay, so here's where this statistic comes from the, um, and there's, you know, this huge problem in how it's put together and the, the very idea that you would, uh, you would use <laughs> that, you, that this would, you know, end up publishable that, uh, uh, unlike all the other things that CBO does where it says like, oh, well, we can't touch that, that they'd say like, oh yeah, well, w- what we can say is that in 30 years, uh, pharma, like pharmaceutical companies and their lobbying groups will be absolutely proved right that HR three is bad. <laughs> so you better not do it guys. Um, at the, like by the same token, for example, I think my favorite example of this, just to, um, I didn't have a chance to interject this earlier, but you know, when you were talking earlier about other stuff that CBO has put out, I think my favorite example of that, um, is one, uh, that the, the three of us were actually just talking about the other day, which is like the fact that, so for instance, the, the last time there was a CBO report on Medicare for all in December of 2020, um, we talked about it on the sh- on the show. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, we have a whole episode dedicated to that, and I believe, appropriately enough, that is the one that was called um, "What Medicare for All Costs Does Not Matter." Yep. Um, yes. But uh, which is true. But interestingly, uh, as I was just reminded recently, in that report, in that December 2020 report, they promise, for example, uh, there's this there's this whole section. There's this beautiful paragraph that's like. You know, we do acknowledge the CBO does acknowledge that there are people who say there could be really positive macroeconomic benefits to doing something like Medicare for all. Uh, for example, it would no longer be tied to work. Uh, all this, you know, all this other stuff. You could have this whole thing, and you know, in there, obviously, in in their very ideological framework, they say like oh, you'd encourage you know innovation or entrepreneurship or whatever, which I'm not interested in, but which I think <laughs> is you know, whatever, whatever they're going to say, they promised then a macro, a report on the macroeconomic uh, impacts of Medicare for all to be due quote unquote spring 2021. I don't know if that's still happening. There's no way to know if that's still happening. It's still in the report. You know, it hasn't been removed from that old PDF or whatever uh, the the claim that they're going to do it. But I wouldn't be surprised if that never sees the fucking light of day, because I don't know who knows what they could have found who knows if someone just like we literally can't know unless it's leaked or something but you know according to exactly what you just said it's important to know that like not only does this agency not get enough scrutiny but also like there are these there are these systemic things that prevent it from getting scrutiny and you see how selectively they let stuff out basically. So if they're not letting a report on the macroeconomic effects of Medicare for all out, unless I'm wrong and they are just taking their sweet time with it, in which case CBO, if you're listening, do not fucking release that because I said so, but do release it, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) But, uh, but you know what I mean? Like the, uh, but you know, if they're not releasing something like that, but they are going to say like, okay, let's just weigh in real quick. And uh, yeah, HR three, the drug pricing act yeah that'd be really bad it's a, yeah actually. it's amazing where um you know 
the where they're willing to speculate and where they're going to, you know, do further study and come up with something later. And I, I think it speaks to also how CBO reports are used, right? Because that's the other portion of it is that over and over again, the CBO scoring something and it looking, you know, bad for the deficit or whatever. <laughs> That is used as this kind of like shield, right? It's like, um, it's like end of discussion, right? The CBO plays the bad guy, right? The CBO says the bad guy. It's like so, so you as a as an elected representative can say, well. You know, I really want to give you all Medicare for all because I know that you, you know, are being exploited by your job who is not giving you insurance. But, you know, the CBO says that we really can't afford it. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to try and get you, you know, this drug pricing reform, which, (laughs) oh, well, the CBO says I can't do that because then in 10 years, the drug you might need might not exist because I took money away from pharma. So like, this is really for me to save your life. And the CBO says I can't do it because like, what if that drug never exists? It's like the equivalent of saying like, what if you were never born? Well, it's perfect. It's the, you know, the state is very selective about where uh, it will take blame deflected to it. So for example, (laughs) if you're, you know, an employee uh, at Spencer's Gifts trying to tell someone that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not you trying to adhere them to, you know, a mask mandate. Uh, if you want to visit Spencer's gifts, you've got to show Biden proof of whatever, vaccination you know before I mean. you can go into Spencer's uh, gifts. Then they won't, you know, they won't take that deflection. You will not be, you know, the again, the Sp- Spencer's gifts employee <laughs> will not be able to deflect to Joe Biden as like, no, no, it's not, you know, it's not me. It's not even the governor of the state. It's like the, you know, it's it's the the federal. Um, it's you know, the federal level is compelling me to say like, hey, buddy, please put your mask on. Instead, no. They, so they won't do that, but they will allow, you know, X or Y Congress person to say, you know, it's not that my district or my state, uh, you know, if they're a senator, like my state houses a significant amount of uh, pharmaceutical company capital and, and investment and jobs and, and stuff like that. And therefore, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to like... Uh, you know, you scratch my back and, and I, or whatever, like I'm, I'm trying to uh, protect their and our interests or, or whatever, no matter what my constituents think. Um, it's that uh, it's that the CBO, you know, the CBO says like, well, you know, do you do you want everyone to be able to access drugs or do you want eight new drugs? Right. right. And it's, it's a zero sum game. There's no yeah, in between. There's no possibility. It, it's articulating a preference for which way they, they, they would rather like we're trying to protect you from some hypothetical way you might die in the future as opposed to protecting you, uh, protecting more people from dying in the present because they can't afford drugs. That's that's really the, the, the preference that you're seeing here. I'll, I think I also want to add to just to go back to what you were talking about, about the data collection section, because there's. There was a aspect that struck me when I was reading the paper, but also then when you were repeating the the line about how you know their CBO does not itself have access to this data for some reason. I don't you know well, like it seems like it would be in their power to get that. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, you know they don't you know putatively don't have access to full data set on all of the stuff that they would need to actually make the right determination on this. Which I, you know this the the fact the quote unquote fact of this eight drugs thing will get repeated ad nauseum. But it will never be said that like well actually they're not even comparing data sets that are relatable to each other. They're looking mm-hmm. at like the they literally have a different data set of drugs for their amount of you know profit generated and a different and a separate other data set that's like 
like about you know R and R and D costs that is again self reported, but the as you said before, like deferring to an outside set of researchers who basically asked for like sent out like survey data to ask pharmaceutical companies you know what their R and D outlays were actually strikes me as extremely it it just it extremely reminds me of the entire Emily Oster situation earlier in this er, earlier in their pandemic Mm -hmm. where um you know so much of the stuff that she was talking about about school safety were literally just based on self-reported data within her exactly right it's it's not like they're doing a study of um the carcinogenic impacts of cigarettes where you can go to walgreens and buy a carton of cigarettes and run a control study to figure out if cigarettes give you cancer it's not like we're taking a car and testing the airbags by buying a car and crashing it and measuring the damage to a dummy this is like pure speculation and i'm not saying that like the cbo is like intentionally making nefarious like reports using stupid bunk data that are absolutely meaningless to cover pharma's ass but i'm not you know not (laughs) saying saying that but uh (laughs) well hey it doesn't have to be intentional hegemony no it doesn't it doesn't doesn't, yeah there has there's that like it could just it's purely like this milieu that like exists, like make no mistake. CBO is doing this, but so is pharma. They're producing reports Mm -hmm. that they have their sort of like army of experts that can produce (laughs) this stuff as well. The difference here is that this is like, this attempt to like absorb the environment and to try to make some definitive statement. Cause I'm sure like, I don't know well like CBO says like eight, eight drugs will be lost in like one decade and 30 in another. Like I'm sure that pharma is like all of the, you know, it's just some sort of like, they're like, they don't actually release a report. They just release some dystopian novel. But, um, but I, you know, so, but like by attempting to absorb the environment, you do whether consciously or not, um, you know, reproduce the exact fiction that capital like really benefits from. Right. Right. And also for example, like in 2020, 53 drugs, were approved through a traditional process. This does not count COVID stuff or anything that like went through as part of Operation Warp Speed. So actually eight drugs over 10 years when there are 53 coming to market per 10 year uh, per year, like or let's even say there's like even 20 per market per year. That's like not actually a huge percentage that you're losing out on. And and it's framed as if it's this catastrophic blow to innovation, right? And and I don't think it's like it's ever actually really provable, right? Like you can't actually prove the claims that pharma makes. And what No, you but it's an easy you get why it's an easy and effective threat. We all see why it's an effective threat. Oh, absolutely. And, and you I actually I mean honestly, you see this threat all the time, particularly when it comes to um, drugs for rare diseases, right? Because there's this whole idea of like, well, you know, pharma will only develop a compound if there's a huge market at the end of the runway, right? So if you are, for example, me, who has a disease that has very few people in that disease population, there is no drug free, right? And there is no company that is studying your disease in order to build a drug because if there are, you know, less than 10,000, it's quote unquote, unattractive as a development opportunity. So, you know, instead of saying, you know, oh, maybe we should try and compel pharmaceutical companies because we're paying for a lot of the research anyways through the NIH. Yeah. 
We should compel pharmaceutical companies to study diseases that don't have drugs, and we are going to do it this way and that way, and we're going to make sure that people with rare diseases have pharmaceuticals because, you know, that is innovation, right? Wouldn't that be innovation, right? Like more kinds right. of I mean, drugs. there are so many, if we actually had, res- if we just simply dedicated the resources that we have to studying them or to, you know, uh, drug development for orphan diseases or for, you know, whatever, what have you, all number of things, like who knows what we could, mm-hmm. like it, we, we would actually be able to, like doing so basically would actually fulfill the, you know, sort of phantom fictive uh, promise that the drug story is right. That the pharmaceutical companies suggest is what's happening. Right. And that's kind of the funniest thing about this particular report, the congressional budget office report about HR three uh, to me is that like, okay, let's say that they're right. Right. I don't know. Like, let's say, let's say we lose eight drugs a year. Let's say that like the, 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 catastrophic uh result of opening uh drug pricing negotiations uh between medicare and pharmaceutical companies starting only in 2025 (laughs) which is ridiculous in itself um the doing so uh and the way that it's proposed would you know affect drug development in such a way where we'd lose eight drugs uh a year or something and and it would snowball from that and we'd lose less and we'd have less and less drugs and then we'd be back into the caveman area that's a great fucking argument for socializing all drug development and everything else you know what i mean this is not like it to a certain degree this also just is further proof that health and the political economy are like a match made in fucking hell and you're never ever going to see the CBO weigh in on the cost of not developing drugs for rare and orphan diseases with small populations, right? right? Because that's not what the CBO does. And Lord knows Congress is not going to legislate its way towards forcing pharma to develop drugs for people who, you know, don't have large disease populations. And so instead, there's a strategy that has emerged um, in the early 2000s called venture philanthropy, where private charities, um, disease-based charities, get involved with pharma companies by providing seed money to incentivize drug development by signing these like no strings attached contracts where they'll, you know, pledge a couple million dollars to whoever drug company um, for the drug company to investigate a treatment for their disease. And, you know, most of the time, these investigations are not successful, right? Because there isn't a lot of research on rare diseases to start with. It's not like you're saying like, oh, we need another blood pressure medicine. So we need to like throw $3 million into developing a new, you know, medication for hypertension, right? Like that we've studied and we have a lot of information on how to treat already. Like, so that's one kind of innovation. And that's the kind of innovation we do all the time in the the sort of like US centered drug system. But like the other kind of innovation, which I would argue is frankly more important and more pressing and urgent and would represent like a more important goal to work towards. Those are the drugs that are supposedly like impossible to ever even make, right? Because one, the disease population is small, so that makes clinical trials more difficult and more expensive. Two, your end of the line patient population is small, so you really can't make that much money unless you charge like a shit ton of money. And that's going to lower your patient pool, too, because private insurance fucking sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and then your third option is basically what happens is then these, you know, these private charities will dump money into companies saying, please, please just investigate our disease. We will give you X million dollars. 
Whatever you come up with at the end, we will make no stake or claim to any intellectual property rights over, even though we put in however many, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars towards just begging you to look into it. And most of the time, these venture philanthropy relationships are not successful and they do not get a drug candidate at the end. And that is money being sucked out of the pockets, literally of the patients themselves who are already fucked at the end of the line, because when the drug comes to market, it's inevitably always expensive because it's for a rare disease. And there are only a couple actual success stories of this working. And that's enough to keep this practice alive, right? Like the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, like they did it. And that drug costs over $300,000 a year when it hit the market. Yeah. And you have to wonder like, who is this really helping? And is this really right. all we can do? You know, and the CBO is never going to weigh in on that ever. Why would they? Absolutely. I mean, nor have is, no nor occasion is, to. I mean, yeah. And I would say that also like, it's not, is if in the absence of CBO weighing in on that, that Congress is like soliciting, it doesn't want to hear, like it, it wants to keep its, you know, members of Congress do not want this sort of information, like having to be like formally on the record. That's right. the, and there's, there's a whole scope. There's a whole bunch of things like outside of that are like always going to remain outside of the policy envelope for them, because that's just not that. That's not how like the sort of the institutional politics of Washington works. Like that takes a, a social movement that takes like putting ideas on the table that are never going to be in in like the scope of Washington like officialdom, right? No, yeah. exactly. And and I think the thing too is that what we're seeing so much in this debate right now um, that's going on, particularly just in the context of like how this drug legislation fits into the broader conversation on you know reconciliation, right? Because Basically, the if you read the Politico newsletter this week, what you'll see is this framing of like centrist Dems like cause turmoil in like Senate, you know, cohesion over drug pricing reform. <laughs> Moderate Democrats. As right. It were. And like what's going on is that essentially you have this situation where like the way that they're actually even trying to pass a lot of these things you know you need like this this broad coalition you can't lose one single vote so the fact that on top of that you know it's already like so stacked against it you're gonna still have the cbo release like one of the most speculative bullshit reports it's ever done that adds this additional hurdle on top of it i mean it really makes you wonder you know what what is the purpose of the CBO now, right? Like, is it used as a tool of restricting political will? Because I think it's arguable that this is now, whatever the CBO was designed for, this is now what it is used for in practice. It is used to restrict the horizon of political and policy possibility to fit the needs of, you know, certain stakeholder groups. Let's just put it that way. You know what I mean? And it's and it it's never clear what stakeholder is actually supposed to benefit from these reports, right? Because it's very sort of depersonalized and framed in this, like with the C- CBO being such a black box too, it's, it appears to be somehow even handed or non-biased. Right. But that's like, there's no way to prove either way. It's right. actually, it's, it's, it's worth like thinking about this. Like the CBO was like one of a kind for a very long time. It was like created in 74. Um, and it was like the only institution like it in most uh, like OECD countries uh, for a really, really, really long time. 
Um, and it was like created basically because of this like crisis, uh, the this like scandal in the Nixon administration with with impoundment, um, and the executive branch like basically deciding it didn't want to spend money that the uh, Congress had had appropriated. <laughs> if you look at when most European countries created institutions that look something like the CBO, it's explicitly after the financial crisis and in response to the like a european wide austerity pact mm. um and like God. it's pretty clear what the purpose of like essentially what what had been learned over a series of decades about what institutions like this could be instrumentalized for mm. um and I, and i think that that's it's worth like sort of outlining that there are all kinds of knowledge that like congress just decides it doesn't care about doesn't need <laughs> doesn't want um, the kind of knowledge that that does seem to circulate the most, and again, like even just like look at look at the things that the CBO like just leaves off the table when it like evaluates any uh, of these other policies, right? Um, like the kind of knowledge that it usually wants is just on cost, but then miraculously, when costs actually like reducing costs actually seems to be something that. Uh, it, you know, sort of advances a policy proposal. You see something like this. Uh, oh, it's not really about the costs. It's uh, we've got to consider the trade-offs with these innovations. We never <laughs> consider the trade-offs any other time, but now we do. And and that's and I right. think that that's like um, it's it's illustrative, but it also is sort of illustrative about how this all how how the profane becomes sacred. It becomes sacred in part because. The CBO's reports are very, very easy to cite. Uh, they become the official statistic, and they they don't often like come in for like yeah people like us like squawk about it I guess, but um uh the like they don't come in for the same sort of like institutional level criticism that like when the EPA makes a like kind of totally like uh wacko uh claim claim about like uh why we need to like deregulate um. Something like it, it'll come in for like immediate criticism. You'll see news stories with all the like scientists being like, whoa, 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 there, techs. Like, let's just slow that down a little bit. Um, you're never going to see that with CBO, but that's actually what you need to see because it, it's like really hard to imagine Congress deciding, uh, e- even like with a bare majority, to like eliminate this office or to like even radically restructure it. But I do think that what's possible is dethroning. Uh, some of these uh, pronouncements and at the, or at the very least, at the very least showing that it's just bread and wine. It's not the fucking body and blood. And, and that's, that's, I actually think that that's easy enough to do. No, I totally agree. I mean, I've, I've heard some people say like, Oh, well, there's like really nothing you can do about the CBO because like, um, you know, for example, like uh, with the EPA, like it's much easier to demonstrate that Dow Chemicals is killing people in West Virginia than it is to demonstrate that the lack of drug development that Pfizer did on cystic fibrosis in the 1980s is resulting in cystic fibrosis patients 20 years later not having treatment, right? Like there's no real like corollary for for like measuring the economic and material harms of disinvestment Absolutely. because we've spent so much time and energy looking away from any means of measuring that actually because if you did right like you would end up with a very different picture 
of the policies that are scored by the CBO. Well, and, and that's such a great point because that makes, you know, that makes, let, let's just say to, to sort of extend the metaphor, that makes the stuff in the CBO report sort of emphasizing or validating the role of the firm, the, you know, quote unquote firm decision problem and whether to advance their research into a particular drug. Um, again, to extend the metaphor, uh, particularly profane because mm-hmm. it like because that is just you know presented as this sort of given possibility that even where essentially it is beyond reproach to say that a pharmaceutical company or whatever did wrong by uh you know taking a drug that could have been that could have absolutely uh been you know beneficial to countless people's lives and shelving it Right. right. There's no there's no circumstance like, where that is where there's any sort of, you know, reaction to that or understanding of like what is yeah, what is lost or whatever. I mean the the Lyme disease vaccine is a really good example yeah. of like, you know, pharma just absolutely cannibalizing its own innovation. This happens all of the time. And the problem is, is that even the rare disease charities, right, like they don't push back on it, right? Like because most of them are engaged in contractual R&D relationships with pharma companies too. So it's not like the patient organizing like perspective like brings in a lot of weight here because like, you know, uh, like you are grateful that the drugs exist at all, right? Like right. even if you're using them off label, like thank God for like Pfizer making my particular IVIG, right? So you like you develop this relationship with the product, right? Where you're like loyal to the product and and you're loyal to the people who who keep producing it because you know you can't produce it yourself. Like yeah, some ph- pharmaceuticals you could DIY, they're easy to synthesize, whatever. But like a lot of the new drugs now are like a lot of the new drug expansion is in the category of specialty pharmacy products. And that's not necessarily because that's like the only place we have left to innovate and all, you know, solid compound like, you know, uh, like pill medications like in the whole entire possibility of the universe have been discovered and already approved. Right. It's because the Specialty Drug Act makes those particularly interesting to pharmaceutical companies to develop because it allows for this exorbitant market price. Well, but also, and then, but, I mean, to be to be clear, also though, because the because the category of like biologics, for example, has been able to has just you know technologically been been able to be created right. really recently, you know, because often we hear that part of it, but then we don't necessarily hear the you know the other part, which is like, but in fact, I mean, these more complicated drugs like for example actually take for instance the drugs that uh, have caused i think most people if they've heard of the category of of biologics or of like for example the category of monoclonal antibodies which are specifically a type of uh, biologic the reason a lot of people will have even heard of those recently is because of covid because of the like Mm -hmm. regeneron and eli Lilly monoclonal antibodies which have become uh, themselves this like subject of a lot of um, political grandstanding or whatever over specifically the last few months. It's like important to highlight that as you're saying, there are obviously a ton of drugs which could be very easily, you know, DIY synthesized and stuff like that. There are also a ton of drugs which are far more complicated, which you, you know, might want something like 
the state or something to be manufacturing centralized a, production, right? Yeah, or, something like that, or just making available for for free because they have a they have a huge positive benefit and they are complicated. They it's are not very something complicated like, to make and it's dangerous. Not like you don't want to fucking do um you know you don't want to build a fucking nuclear reactor honestly in like backyard right? you should so not like, a, a for-profit company should never be allowed to make a biologic medication they are too complex to be like delegated absolutely. to someone who is like incentivized to cut corners because they have a profit margin in mind like that's my opinion Hell personally yeah. and i would like to just point out that the biden administration is now rationing access to the covid maps because people like ron desantis our great you know crown prince of the great state of florida florida started opening all these um uh, like infusion sites because the mab was being pitched as this strategy um to treat inside of the vaccine yeah well to treat all of the infections that were happening right so now like the covid biologics too which for the longest time were not being used at all because the government wasn't properly communicating to providers how to even get their patients hooked up with the mab and when it would be good to get the mab now it's like the biden administration is in a position where they're like having to ration it because seven states ordered too many of the maps and now there isn't enough for like Idaho or New York because like it's all in Florida and this is the exact kind of problem that is artificially constructed right because if you if you relegate the production of these drugs to um, a market framework right like you're only going to produce as much as you um, are going to sell but that's clearly uh not necessarily like the best thing to do in the context of the pandemic and so it's you this shit happens over and over and over again and it's all problems of our own design because we refuse to interfere with the precious precious innovation of pharma and it's this threat that they roll out over and over and over again and and so far it has worked but i do think that there's like a lot of room to push back because honestly like there is not a lot actually supporting their claim well said (laughs) well yeah okay so like this is this is what's what's amazing right is like we've been talking about these institutions um and i think you can see their their power and the way that they can be like instrumentalized by pharma, not again, because they persuade anybody (laughs) or most people of anything that they don't need to, all they need to do. And really all of these just absolute, just like piss pants, cowards, (laughs) um, (laughs) Kathleen Rice, Kurt Schrader, uh, the other guy, what, Donald Duck, or what? I don't know what is that. I don't know what the third one is. <laughs> Kurt oh, uh, Schroeder Sc- from Scott MTV. Peters, Schroeder from Peanuts. Um, <laughs> uh, like the like, the, like they all they need to do is have something, anything to say. Like that's the premise. They're like, no one's gonna hold me accountable for this. No one's gonna listen to this. No one like like people have goldfish memory and no one really cares and everyone's like too like blackpilled on the world to even give a single shit about like what I'm doing even though like the the vast majority of my constituents actually think that I'm out of step with them on this right. issue so like Kathleen Rice ran on uh HR3 she mm-hmm. voted for it before yeah. same bill voted for it and like in 2020, her or like, you know, one of her slogans that taking on drug and insurance companies to lower the cost of health care uh, this year, uh, though, but doing that would not be fiscally responsible, by the way. Uh, not actually like a it, misnomer. Like what she means to say is that, like, it's not uh, good for 
well, drug innovation or whatever, but like mm-hmm. whatever. It, these these you can tell that these words don't mean anything. But she's right. like, oh, the CBO said it. I guess I'll have uh, the intern write up something about how it's not fiscally responsible. But that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing. It's not. It's not that like you have to worry about every sort of little last detail of what these institutions are doing. But you can see how they like underwrite this just dismissal of what um, the the vast majority of people want. And it's not just the CBO. It's the parliamentarian. It's the budget process itself. It's like any number of institutions. And like what that should tell you is just like the innervation of like it, like the institutions of like mass working class politics. Now the things that are like the metronome of politics are these institutions that are completely remote, completely divorced from what the vast majority of people want. And by contrast, like the institutions that might be able to like hold somebody like Kathleen Rice's feet to the fire are like defanged like that, that to me, like that, that contrast between like institutions that are actually able to do like accountability for most people and institutions that do accountability essentially either for some remote concept of, uh, the deficit or for the pharmaceutical companies themselves. Mm-hmm. Like that's ultimately where the, like the balance of institutional power uh, lies. And you don't get out of this simply by destroying the CBO. You get out of it by making politics turn around other kinds of institutional pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I honestly feel like that's, we should leave it there. Cause that's kind of like the perfect point to round out this discussion because it, you know, it's, I think like you can too easily get caught up in like vilifying one institution instead of like actually seeing how all of the pieces are all equally <laughs> fucked and working together. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, maybe we'll have to like put our, our death panel CBO hat up on the merch store just to celebrate. Oh, it looks good. It looks good. Yeah. Yeah, I, it looks I good. People that. are like, oh, what's that hat? I'm like, oh, it's a. Uh CBO hat. Well, <laughs> secret, secret merch. Yeah. So I guess this is a secret merch drop episode now. Yeah, Easter egg if so. you've made it this far. If you are a CBO employee who listens to the show, so you can wear it to work. And uh, you know, it's it's it look the logo looks a little bit like the CBO. But it looks logo, so good. But it's uh, it's, the, it's, it's like, secretly it's a death panel a dead logo. ringer. It's like a yeah. dead ringer for their logo. It's amazing. Exactly. So yeah, maybe um, we'll say uh, use code drug story for a discount. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll gives see. you ninety nine cents off or something. No, I'm joking. I don't want to be. I don't. Wanna, I actually just realized I don't want to be in a in a position where uh, we're having to verify whether people are employees of the federal government or not. So just, <laughs> right. just, just also anyway. everything. So if you are anyway, so (laughs) right. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah. um, And if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes, including our Tuesday bonus episode from this week, which was a really fun takedown of the philosopher Prince Peter Singer. um, (laughs) Still hurting from that one. Become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore. And um, for patrons, we'll see you on Tuesday. Everybody else. We'll see you later next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
one's looking, can you summon honey from a telephone? They sat there with their hooks in the water and their mustaches caked with airplane glue. Oh, come let us adore them California overboard. When the sun sets on the ghetto, all the broken stuff gets cold. Smith and Jones, forever. Imagine a future in which a vaccine for COVID-19 was never discovered. Schools remain closed. Seniors isolated from loved ones. Workers and families with nowhere to turn. Imagine a world in chaos. An America unrecognizable to any of us. Under Nancy Pelosi's foreign drug pricing schemes, the next time a crisis occurs, it won't be hard to imagine at all. 